Welcome to Another World Audiobooks. If you're confused as to why there's an episode today, it's because we have the generosity of Nikki Wagner to thank for a very special bonus full week of content here as we go through The Secret Garden. If you didn't listen to Sunday's episode, I had uh, an interview with Nikki and uh, there was the first couple chapters of the book. So go back, listen to that and uh, get all caught up on what's going on. If you're all confused and wondering where Emma went, never fear, she will be back regularly scheduled uh, episode on this coming Sunday. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, all this crazy bonus content is like Christmas came early. Without further ado, I give you the next chapters of The Secret Garden, narrated by special guest narrator, Nikki Wagner. Chapter 13. I am Colin. Mary took the picture back to the house when she went to her supper, and she shouted to Martha. "Eh," said Martha with great pride. "I never knew our Dickon was as clever as that. That there's a picture of a missile thrush on her nest, as large as life and twice as natural." Then Mary knew Dickon had meant the picture to be a message. He had meant that she might be sure he would keep her secret. Her garden was her nest, and she was like a missile thrush. Oh, how she did like that queer common boy. She hoped he would come back the very next day, and she fell asleep looking forward to the morning. But you never know what the weather will do in Yorkshire, particularly in the springtime. She was awakened in the night by the sound of rain beating with heavy drops against her window. It was pouring down in torrents, and the wind was wuthering round the corners and in the chimneys of the huge old house. Mary sat up in bed and felt miserable and angry. The rain is contrary as I ever was, she said. It came because I knew I did not want it. She threw herself back on her pillow and buried her face. She did not cry, but she lay and hated the sound of the heavily beating rain. She hated the wind and its wuthering. She could not go to sleep again. The mournful sound kept her awake because she felt mournful herself. If she had felt happy, it would probably have lulled her to sleep. How it wuthered, and how the big raindrops poured down and beat against the pane. It sounds just like a person lost on the moor and wandering on and on crying, she said. She had been lying awake, turning from side to side for about an hour, when suddenly something made her sit up in bed and turned her head toward the door, listening. She listened, and she listened. It isn't the wind now, she said in a loud whisper. That isn't the wind. It is different. It is that crying I heard before. The door of the room was ajar, and the sound came down the corridor, a far-off faint sound of fretful crying. She listened for a few minutes, and each minute she became more and more sure. She felt as if she must find out what it was. It seemed even stranger than the secret garden and the buried key. Perhaps the fact that she was in a rebellious mood made her bold. She put her foot out of bed and stood on the floor. I am going to find out what it is, she said. Everybody is in bed, and I don't care about Mrs. Medlock. I don't care! There was a candle by her bedside, and she took it up and went softly out of the room. 
The corridor looked very long and dark, but she was too excited to mind that. She thought she remembered the corner she must turn to find the short corridor with the door covered with tapestry, the one Mrs. Medlock had come through the day she lost herself. The sound had come up that passage, so she went on with her dim light, almost feeling her way, her heart beating so loud that she fancied she could hear it. The far-off faint crying went on and led her. Sometimes it stopped for a moment or so and then began again. Was this the right corner to turn? She stopped and thought, yes, it was. Down this passage and to the left and then up two broad steps and then to the right again. Yes, there was the tapestry door. She pushed it open very gently and closed it behind her and she stood in the corridor and could hear the crying quite plainly, though it was not loud. It was on the other side of the wall at her left, and a few yards farther on there was a door. She could see a glimmer of light coming from beneath it. The someone was crying in that room, and it was quite a young someone. So she walked to the door and pushed it open, and there she was, standing in the room. It was a big room with ancient handsome furniture in it. There was a low fire glowing faintly on the hearth and a night light burning by the side of the carved four-poster bed hung with brocade and on the bed was lying a boy crying fretfully. Mary wondered if she was in a real place or if she had fallen asleep again and was dreaming without knowing it. The boy had a sharp, delicate face the colour of ivory and he seemed to have eyes too big for it. He had also a lot of hair which tumbled over his forehead in heavy locks and made his thin face seem smaller. He looked like a boy who had been ill, but he was crying more as if he were tired and cross than as if he were in pain. Mary stood near the door with her candle in her hand, holding her breath. Then she crept across the room, and as she drew nearer, the light attracted the boy's attention, and he turned his head on his pillow and stared at her, his grey eyes opening so wide that they seemed immense. "'Who are you?' he said at last in a half-frightened whisper. "'Are you a ghost?' "'No, I am not,' Mary answered, her own whisper sounding half-frightened. "'Are you one?' He stared, and stared, and stared. Mary could not help noticing what strange eyes he had. They were agate grey, and they looked too big for his face, because they had black lashes all round them. No, he replied, after waiting a moment or so. I am Colin. Who is Colin? she faltered. I am Colin Craven. Who are you? I am Mary Lennox. Mr Craven is my uncle. He is my father said the boy. Your father? gasped Mary. No one ever told me he had a boy. Why didn't they? Come here, he said, still keeping his strange eyes fixed on her with an anxious expression. She came close to the bed, and he put out his hand and touched her. You aren't real, are you? he said. I have such real dreams very often. You might be one of them. Mary had slipped on a woollen wrapper before she left the room, and she put a piece of it between his fingers. Rub that and see how thick and warm it is, 
she said. I will pinch you a little if you like, to show you how real I am. For a minute I thought you might be a dream too. Where did you come from? he asked. From my own room. The wind wuthered, so I couldn't get to sleep, and I heard someone crying and wanted to find out who it was. What were you crying for? Because I couldn't go to sleep either, and my head ached. Tell me your name again. Mary Lennox. Did no one ever tell you I had come to live here? He was still fingering the fold of her wrapper, but he began to look a little more as if he believed in her reality. No, he answered. They daren't. Why? asked Mary. Because I should have been afraid you would see me. I won't let people see me and talk me over. Why? Mary asked again, feeling more mystified every moment. Because I am like this always, ill and having to lie down. My father won't let people talk me over either. The servants are not allowed to speak about me. If I live, I may be a hunchback, but I shan't live. My father hates to think I may be like him. Oh, what a queer house this is, Mary said. What a queer house. Everything is a kind of secret. Rooms are locked up and gardens are locked up. And you, have you been locked up? No, I stay in this room because I don't want to be moved out of it. It tires me too much. Does your father come and see you? Mary ventured. Sometimes. Generally when I am asleep. He doesn't want to see me. Why? Mary could not help asking again. A sort of angry shudder passed over the boy's face. My mother died when I was born, and it makes him wretched to look at me. He thinks I don't know, but I've heard people talking. He almost hates me. He hates the garden because she died, said Mary, half speaking to herself. What garden? the boy asked. Oh, just, just a garden she used to like. Mary stammered. Have you been here always? Nearly always. Sometimes I have been taken to places at the seaside, but I won't stay because people stare at me. I used to wear an iron thing to keep my back straight, but a grand doctor came from London to see me and said it was stupid. He told them to take it off and keep me out in the fresh air. I hate fresh air and I don't want to go out. I didn't when I first came here said Mary. Why do you keep looking at me like that? Because of the dreams that are so real, he answered rather fretfully. Sometimes when I open my eyes, I don't believe I'm awake. We are both awake, said Mary. She glanced round the room with its high ceiling and shadowy corners and dim firelight. It looks quite like a dream. And it's the middle of the night, and everybody in the house is asleep. Everybody but us. We are wide awake. I don't want it to be a dream, the boy said restlessly. Mary thought of something all at once. If you don't like people to see you, she began, do you want me to go away? He still held the folds of her wrapper and gave it a little pull. No, he said. I should be sure you were a dream if you went. If you are real, sit down on that big footstool and talk. I want to hear about you. Mary put down her candle on the table near the bed 
had sat down on the cushioned stool. She did not want to go away at all. She wanted to stay in a mysterious hidden away room and talk to the mysterious boy. What do you want me to tell you? she said. He wanted to know how long she had been at Misselwaite. He wanted to know which corridor her room was on. He wanted to know what she had been doing, if she disliked the moor as he disliked it, where she had lived before she came to Yorkshire. She answered all these questions and many more, and he lay on his pillow and listened. He made her tell him a great deal about India and about her voyage across the ocean. She found out that because he had been an invalid, he had not learned things as other children had. One of his nurses had taught him to read when he was quite little, and he was always reading and looking at pictures and splendid books. Though his father rarely saw him when he was awake, he was given all sorts of wonderful things to amuse himself with. He never seemed to have been amused, however. He could have anything he asked for, and was never made to do anything he did not like to do. Everyone is obliged to do what pleases me, he said indifferently. It makes me ill to be angry. No one believes I shall live to grow up. He said it as if he was so accustomed to the idea that it had ceased to matter to him at all. As she went on talking, he listened in a drowsy, interested way. Once or twice she wondered if he were not gradually falling into a doze. But at last he asked a question which opened up a new subject. How old are you? he asked. I am ten, answered Mary, forgetting herself for the moment. And so are you. How do you know that? he demanded in a surprised voice. Because when you were born, the garden door was locked and the key was buried, and it has been locked for ten years. Colin half sat up, turning toward her, leaning on his elbows. What garden door was locked? Who did it? Where was the key buried? he exclaimed, as if he was suddenly very much interested. It's... it was the garden Mr. Craven hates, said Mary nervously. He locked the door. No one knew where he buried the key. What sort of a garden is it? Colin persisted eagerly. No one has been allowed to go into it for ten years, was Mary's careful answer. But it was too late to be careful. He was much too like herself. He too had had nothing to think about, and the idea of a hidden garden attracted him as it had attracted her. He asked question after question. Where was it? Had she never looked for the door? Had she never asked the gardeners? They won't talk about it, said Mary. I think they have been told not to answer questions. I would make them, said Colin. Could you? Mary faltered, beginning to feel frightened. If he could make people answer questions, who knew what might happen? Everyone is obliged to please me. I told you that, he said. If I were to live, this place would sometime belong to me. They all know that. I would make them tell me. Mary had not known that she herself had been spoiled, but she could see quite plainly that this mysterious boy had been. He thought that the whole world belonged to him. How peculiar he was, and how coolly he spoke of not living. Do you think you won't live? she asked, partly because she was curious, and partly in hope of making him forget the garden. 
I don't suppose I shall, he answered as indifferently as he had spoken before. Ever since I remember anything, I have heard people say I shan't. At first they thought I was too little to understand, and now they think I don't hear. But I do. My doctor is my father's cousin. He is quite poor, and if I die, he will have all missled weight when my father is dead. I should think he wouldn't want me to live. Do you want to live? inquired Mary. No, he answered in a cross, tired fashion. But I don't want to die. When I feel ill, I lie here and think about it until I cry and cry. I have heard you crying three times, Mary said, but I did not know who it was. Were you crying about that? She did so want him to forget the garden. I dare say, he answered. Let us talk about something else. Talk about that garden. Don't you want to see it? Yes, answered Mary, in quite a low voice. I do, he went on persistently. I don't think I've ever really wanted to see anything before. But I want to see that garden. I want the key dug up. I want the door unlocked. I would let them take me there in my chair. That would be getting fresh air. I am going to make them open the door. He'd become quite excited, and his strange eyes began to shine like stars and looked more immense than ever. They have to please me, he said. I will make them take me there, and I will let you go too. Mary's hands clutched each other. Everything would be spoiled. Everything. Dickon would never come back. She would never again feel like a missile thrush with a safe hidden nest. Oh, don't, 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 don't do that, she cried out. He stared as if he thought she had gone crazy. Why, he exclaimed, you said you wanted to see it. I do, she answered almost with a sob in her throat. But if you make them open the door and take you in like that, it will never be a secret again. He leaned still farther forward. A secret, he said. What do you mean? Tell me. Mary's words almost tumbled over one another. You see, you see, she panted, if no one knows but ourselves, if there was a door hidden somewhere under the ivy, if there was, and we could find it, if we could slip through it together and shut it behind us, and no one knew anyone was inside, and we called it our garden, and pretended that, that we were missile thrushes, and it was our nest, and if we played there almost every day, and dug and planted seeds, and made it all come alive. Is it dead? he interrupted her. It soon will be, if no one cares for it, she went on. The bulbs will live, but the roses... He stopped her again, as excited as she was herself. What are bulbs? he put in quickly. They are daffodils and lilies and snowdrops. They are working in the earth now, pushing up pale green points because the spring is coming. Is the spring coming? he said. What is it like? You don't see it in rooms if you are ill. It is the sun shining on the rain, and the rain falling on the sunshine, and things pushing up and working under the earth, said Mary. If the garden was a secret, and we could get into it, and we could watch the things grow bigger every day, and see how many roses are alive. Don't you see? 
And don't you see how much nicer it would be if it was a secret? He dropped back on his pillow and lay there with an odd expression on his face. I never had a secret, he said, except that one about not living to grow up. They don't know I know that, so it is a sort of secret. But I like this kind better. If you won't make them take you to the garden, pleaded Mary, perhaps I feel almost sure I can find out how to get in some time. And then, if the doctor wants you to go out in your chair, and if you can always do what you want to do, perhaps, perhaps we might find some boy who could push you, and we could go alone. It could always be a secret garden. I should like that, he said very slowly, his eyes looking dreamy. I should like that. I should not mind fresh air in a secret garden. Mary began to recover her breath and feel safer because the idea of keeping the secret seemed to please him. She felt almost sure that if she kept on talking, it could make him see the garden in his mind as she had seen it. He would like it so much that he could not bear to think that everybody might tramp into it when they chose. I'll tell you what I think it would be like if we could go into it, she said. It has been shut up so long, things have grown into a tangle, perhaps. He lay quite still and listened while she went on talking about the roses, which might have clambered from tree to tree and hung down, about the many birds which might have built their nests there because it was so safe. And then she told him about the robin and then Weatherstaff. And there was so much to tell about the robin, and it was so easy and safe to talk about it that she ceased to be afraid. The robin pleased him so much that he smiled until he looked almost beautiful. And at first, Mary had thought that he was even plainer than herself, with his big eyes and heavy locks of hair. I did not know birds could be like that, he said. But if you stay in a room, you never see things. What a lot of things you know. I feel as if you had never been inside that garden. She did not know what to say, so she did not say anything. He evidently did not expect an answer, and the next moment he gave her a surprise. I am going to let you look at something, he said. Do you see that rose-coloured silk curtain hanging on the wall over the mantelpiece? Mary had not noticed it before, but she looked up and saw it. It was a curtain of soft silk hanging over what seemed to be some picture. Yes, she answered. There was a cord hanging from it, said Colin. Go and pull it. Mary got up, much mystified, and found the cord. When she pulled it, the silk curtain rang back on rings, and when it rang back, it uncovered a picture. It was a picture of a girl with a laughing face. She had bright hair tied up with a blue ribbon, and her gay, lovely eyes were exactly like Colin's unhappy ones, agate grey, and looking twice as big as they really were because of the black lashes all round them. She is my mother, said Colin complainingly. I don't see why she died. Sometimes I hate her for doing it. How queer, said Mary. If she had lived... I believe I should not have been ill always, he grumbled. I dare say I should have lived too. 
and my father would not have hated to look at me. I dare say I should have had a strong back. Draw the curtain again. Mary did as she was told, and returned to her footstool. She is much prettier than you, she said, but her eyes are just like yours. At least they are the same shape and colour. Why is the curtain drawn over her? He moved uncomfortably. I made them do it, he said. Sometimes I don't like to see her looking at me. She smiles too much when I am ill and miserable. Besides, she is mine, and I don't want everyone to see her. There were a few moments of silence, and then Mary spoke. What would Mrs. Medlock do if she found out that I had been here? she inquired. She would do as I told her to do, he answered. And I should tell her that I wanted you to come here and talk to me every day. I am glad you came. So am I, said Mary. I will come as often as I can, but... She hesitated. I shall have to look every day for the garden door. Yes, you must, said Colin. And you can tell me about an afterward. He lay thinking a few minutes, as he had done before, and then he spoke again. I think you shall be a secret too he said. I will not tell them until they find out. I can always send the nurse out of the room and say that I want to be by myself. Do you know Martha? Yes, I know her very well, said Mary. She waits on me. He nodded his head toward the outer corridor. She is the one who is asleep in the other room. The nurse went away yesterday to stay all night with her sister, and she always makes Martha attend to me when she wants to go out. Martha shall tell you when you need to come here. Then Mary understood Martha's troubled look when she had asked questions about the crying. Martha knew about you all the time? she said. Yes, she often attends to me. The nurse likes to get away from me, and then Martha comes. I have been here a long time, said Mary. Shall I go away now? Your eyes look sleepy. I wish I could go to sleep before you leave me, he said rather shyly. Shut your eyes, said Mary, drawing her footstool closer, and I will do what my Arya used to do in India. I will pat your head and stroke it and sing something quite low. I should like that, perhaps, he said drowsily. Somehow she was sorry for him and did not want him to lie awake. So she leaned against the bed and began to stroke and pat his head and sing a very low little chanting song in Hindu Tsani. That is nice, he said more drowsily still. And she went on chanting and stroking, but when she looked at him again, his black lashes were lying close against his cheeks, for his eyes were shut and he was fast asleep. So she got up softly, took her candle, and crept away without making a sound. Chapter 14 A Young Raja The moor was hidden in mist when the morning came, and the rain had not stopped pouring down. There could be no going out of doors. Martha was so busy that Mary had no opportunity of talking to her, but in the afternoon she asked her to come and sit with her in the nursery. She came bringing the stocking she was always knitting when she was doing nothing else. "'What's the matter with thee?' she asked as soon as she sat down. 
thou looks as if thou had something to say. I have. I have found out what the crying was, said Mary. Martha let her knitting drop on her knee and gazed at her with startled eyes. Thou hasn't, she exclaimed. Never. I heard it in the night, Mary went on, and I got up and went to see where it came from. It was Colin. I found him. Martha's face became red with fright. Eh, Miss Mary, she said half crying. Thou shouldn't have done it. Thou shouldn't. Thou'll get me in trouble. I never told thee nothing about him. But thou'll get me in trouble. I should lose my place. And what'll mother do? You won't lose your place, said Mary. He was glad I came. We talked and talked, and he said he was glad I came. Was he? cried Martha. Art thou sure? Thou doesn't know what he's like when anything vexes him. He's a big lad to cry like a baby. When he's in a passion, he'll fair scream just to frighten us. He knows us daren't call our souls our own. He wasn't vexed, said Mary. I asked him if I should go away, and he made me stay. He asked me questions, and I sat on a big footstool and talked to him about India and about the robin and gardens. He wouldn't let me go. He let me see his mother's picture. Before I left him, I sang him to sleep. Martha fairly gasped with amazement. I can scarcely believe thee, she protested. It's as if thou walked straight into a lion's den. If he'd been like he is most times, he'd have thrown himself into one of his tantrums and roused the house. He won't let strangers look at him. He let me look at him. I looked at him all the time, and he looked at me. We stared, said Mary. I don't know what to do, cried agitated Martha. If Mrs. Medlock finds out, she'll think I broke orders and told thee, and I shall be packed back to mother. He is not going to tell Mrs. Medlock anything about it yet. It's to be a sort of secret just at first, said Mary firmly. And he says everybody is obliged to do as he pleases. Aye, that's true enough. The bad lad, sighed Martha, wiping her forehead with her apron. He says Mrs. Medlock must, and he wants me to come and talk to him every day. And you are to tell me when he wants me. Me, said Martha, I shall lose my place. I shall for sure. You can't if you are doing what he wants you to do, and everybody is ordered to obey him, Mary argued. Does that mean to say, cried Martha with wide open eyes, that he was nice to thee? I think he almost liked me, Mary answered. Then thou must have bewitched him decided Martha, drawing a long breath. Do you mean magic? inquired Mary. I've heard about magic in India, but I can't make it. I just went into the room, and I was so surprised to see him I stood instead. And then he turned round and stared at me. And he thought I was a ghost, or a dream, and I thought perhaps he was. And it was so queer being there alone together in the middle of the night and not knowing about each other. And we began to ask each other questions. And when I asked him if I must go away, he said I must not. The world's coming to an end, gasped Martha. 
"'What is the matter with him?' asked Mary. "'Nobody knows for sure and certain,' said Martha. "'Mr. Craven went off his head like when he was born. "'The doctor thought he'd have to be put in asylum. "'It was because Mrs. Craven died like I told you. "'He wouldn't set eyes on the baby. "'He just raved and said it would be another hunchback like him, "'and it had better die.' "'Is Colin a hunchback?' Mary asked. "'He didn't look like one.' "'He isn't yet,' said Martha. "'But he began all wrong. "'Mother said that there was enough trouble and raging in the house to set any child wrong. "'They was afraid his back was weak, and they've always been taking care of it, "'keeping him lying down and not letting him walk. "'Once they made him wear a brace, but he fretted, so he was downright ill. "'Then a big doctor came to see him and made them take it off. "'He talked to the doctor quite rough.' In a polite way, he said there'd be too much medicine and too much letting him have his own way. I think he's a very spoiled boy, said Mary. He's the worst thing now to ever was, said Martha. I won't say as he hasn't been ill a good bit. He's had coughs and colds that nearly killed him two or three times. Once he had rheumatic fever and once he had typhoid. Hey, Mrs. Medlock did get a fright then. He'd been out of his head, and she was talking to the nurse, thinking he didn't know nothing, and she said, he'll die this time, sure enough, and best thing for him in everybody. And she looked at him, and there he was with his big eyes open, staring at her as sensible as she was herself. She didn't know what had happened, but he just stared at her and says, you'll give me some water, and stop talking. Do you think he will die? asked Mary. Mother says there's no reason why any child should live that gets no fresh air and doesn't do nothing but lie on his back and read picture books and take medicine. He's weak and he hates the trouble of being taken out of doors and he gets cold so easy he says it makes him ill. Mary sat and looked at the fire. I wonder, she said slowly, if it would not do him good to go out into a garden and watch things growing. It did me good. One of the worst fits he ever had, said Martha, was one time that took him out where the roses is by the fountain. He's been reading in a paper about people getting something he called Rose Cold, and he began to sneeze, and said he got it, and threw a new gardener as didn't know the rules passed by and looked at him curious. He threw himself into a passion, and he said he'd looked at him because he was going to be a hunchback. He cried himself into a fever, and was ill all night. If he ever gets angry at me, I'll never go and see him again, said Mary. He'll have thee if he wants thee, said Martha. Thou may as well know that at the start. Very soon afterward, a bell rang, and she rolled up her knitting. I dare say the nurse wants me to stay with him a bit, she said. I hope he's in a good temper. She was out of the room about ten minutes, and then she came back with a puzzled expression. Well, the has bewitched him, she said. He's up on his sofa with his picture books. He's told the nurse to stay away until six o'clock. I'm to wait in the next room. The minute she was gone, he called me to him and says, I want Mary Lennox to come and talk to me. And remember, you're not to tell anyone. You better go as quick as you can. Mary was quite willing to go quickly. She did not want to see Colin as much as she wanted to see Dickon, 
but she wanted to see him very much. There was a bright fire on the hearth when she entered his room, and in the daylight she saw it was a very beautiful room indeed. There were rich colours in the rugs and hangings and pictures and books on the walls, which made it look glowing and comfortable, even in spite of the grey sky and falling rain. Colin looked rather like a picture himself. He was wrapped in a velvet dressing-gown and set against a big brocaded cushion. He had a red spot on each cheek. Come in he said. I've been thinking about you all morning. I've been thinking about you too, answered Mary. You don't know how frightened Martha is. She says Mrs. Medlock will think she told me about you, and then she will be sent away. He frowned. Go and tell her to come here, he said. She is in the next room. Mary went and brought her back. Poor Martha was shaking in her shoes. Colin was still frowning. "'Have you to do what I please, or have you not?' he demanded. "'I have to do what you please, sir,' Martha faltered, turning quite red. "'Has Medlock to do what I please?' "'Everybody has, sir,' said Martha. "'Well, then, if I order you to bring Miss Mary to me, "'how can Medlock send you away if she finds it out?' "'Please don't let her, sir,' pleaded Martha. "'I'll send her away if she dares to say a word about such a thing,' said Master Craven grandly. "'She wouldn't like that, I can tell you.' "'Thank you, sir,' bobbing a curtsy. "'I want to do my duty, sir.' "'What I want is your duty,' said Colin more grandly still. "'I'll take care of you. Now go away.' When the door closed behind Martha, Colin found Mistress Mary gazing at him as if he had set her wondering. "'Why do you look at me like that?' he asked her. "'What are you thinking about?' "'I am thinking about two things. "'What are they? "'Sit down and tell me.' "'This is the first one,' said Mary, seating herself on the big stool. "'Once in India I saw a boy who was a rajah.' He had rubies and emeralds and diamonds stuck all over him. He spoke to his people just as you spoke to Martha. Everybody had to do everything he told them. In a minute! I think they would have been killed if they hadn't. I shall make you tell me about Rogers presently, he said. But first, tell me what the second thing was. I was thinking, said Mary, how different you are from Dickon. Who is Dickon? he said. What a queer name! She might as well tell him. She thought she could talk about Dickon without mentioning the secret garden. She had liked to hear Martha talk about him. Besides, she longed to talk about him. It would seem to bring him nearer. He is Martha's brother. He is twelve years old, she explained. He is not like anyone else in the world. He can charm foxes and squirrels and birds just as the natives in India charm snakes. He plays a very soft tune on a pipe, and they come and listen. There were some big books on a table at his side, and he dragged one suddenly toward him. There is a picture of a snake charmer in this, he exclaimed. Come and look at it. The book was a beautiful one, with superb coloured illustrations, and he turned to one of them. Can he do that? he asked eagerly. He played on his pipe, and they listened, Mary explained. But he doesn't call it magic. He says it's because he lives on the moor so much, and he knows their ways. 
He says he feels sometimes as if he was a bird or a rabbit himself. He likes them so. I think he asks the robins questions. It seems as if they talk to each other in soft chirps. Colin lay back on his cushion, and his eyes grew larger and larger, and a spot on his cheeks burned. Tell me more about him, he said. He knows all about eggs and nests, Mary went on, and he knows where foxes and badgers and otters live. He keeps them secret so that other boys won't find their holes and frighten them. He knows about everything that grows or lives on the moor. Does he like the moor? said Colin. How can he when it's such a great, bare, dreary place? It's the most beautiful place, protested Mary. Thousands of lovely things grow in it, and there are thousands of little creatures all busy building nests and making holes and burrows and chirping or singing or squeaking to each other. They are so busy and having such fun under the earth or in the trees or heather. It's their world. How do you know all that? said Colin, turning on his elbow to look at her. I have never been there once, really, said Mary, suddenly remembering. I only drove over it in the dark. I thought it was hideous. Martha told me about it first, and then Dickon. When Dickon talks about it, you feel as if you saw things and heard them, and as if you were standing in a heather with the sun shining and the gorse smelling like honey, and all full of bees and butterflies. You never see anything if you are ill, said Colin restlessly. He looked like a person listening to a new sound in the distance and wondering what it was. You can't if you stay in a room, said Mary. I couldn't go on the moor, he said in a resentful tone. Mary was silent for a minute, and then she said something bold. You might, sometime. He moved as if he were startled. Go on the moor? How could I? I'm going to die. How do you know? said Mary unsympathetically. She didn't like the way he had of talking about dying. She did not feel very sympathetic. She felt rather as if he almost boasted about it. Oh, I've heard it ever since I remember, he answered crossly. They are always whispering about it and thinking I don't notice. They wish I would, too. Mistress Mary felt quite contrary. She pinched her lips together. If they wished I would, she said, I wouldn't. Who wishes you would? The servants. And, of course, Dr. Craven, because he would get miserweight and be rich instead of poor. He don't say so, but he always looks cheerful when I am worse. When I have typhoid fever, his face got quite fat. I think my father wishes it too. I don't believe he does, said Mary quite obstinately. That made Colin turn and look at her again. Don't you? he said. And then he lay back on his cushion and was still, as if he were thinking. And there was quite a long silence. Perhaps they were both of them thinking strange things children do not usually think. I like the Grand Doctor from London, because he made them take that iron thing off, said Mary at last. Did he say you were going to die? No. What did he say? He didn't whisper, Colin answered. Perhaps he knew I hated whispering. I heard them say one thing quite loud. He said, 
The lad might live if he would make up his mind to it. Put him in the humour. It sounded as if he was in a temper. I'll tell you who would put you in the humour, perhaps, said Mary, reflecting. She felt as if she should like this thing to be settled one way or the other. I believe Dickon would. He's always talking about live things. He never talks about dead things or things that are ill. He's always looking up in the sky to watch birds flying, or looking down at the earth to see something growing. He has such round blue eyes, and they are so wide open with looking about. And he laughs such a big laugh with his wide mouth, and his cheeks are as red, as red as cherries. She pulled her stool nearer to the sofa, and her expression quite changed at the remembrance of the wide curving mouth and wide open eyes. See here, she said, don't let us talk about dying. I don't like it. Let us talk about living. Let us talk and talk about Dickon, and then we will look at your pictures. It was the best thing she could have said. To talk about Dickon meant to talk about the moor, and about the cottage, and the fourteen people who lived in it on sixteen shillings a week, and the children who got fat on the moor grass like the wild ponies, and about Dickon's mother, and a skipping rope, and the moor with the sun on it, and about pale green points sticking up out to the black sod. And it was all so alive that Mary talked more than she had ever talked before and Colin both talked and listened as he had never done either before. And they both began to laugh over nothings as children will when they are happy together. And they laughed so that in the end they were making as much noise as they had been two ordinary, healthy, natural ten-year-old creatures, instead of a hard, little, unloving girl and a sickly boy who believed he was going to die. They enjoyed themselves so much that they forgot the pictures and they forgot about the time. They had been laughing quite loudly over Ben Weatherstaff and his robin, and Colin was actually sitting up as if he had forgotten about his weak back, when he suddenly remembered something. "'Do you know there is one thing we have never once thought of?' he said. "'We are cousins!' It seemed so queer that they had talked so much, and never remembered this simple thing that they laughed more than ever, because they had got into the humour to laugh at anything.' And in the midst of the fun, the door opened, and in walked Dr. Craven and Mrs. Medlock. Dr. Craven started in actual alarm, and Mrs. Medlock almost fell back because he had accidentally bumped against her. Good Lord! exclaimed poor Mrs. Medlock, with her eyes almost starting out of her head. Good Lord! What is this? said Dr. Craven, coming forward. What does it mean? Then Mary was reminded of the boy Raja again. Colin answered as if neither the doctor's alarm nor Mrs. Medlock's terror were of the slightest consequence. He was as little disturbed or frightened as if an elderly cat and dog had walked into the room. "'This is my cousin, Mary Lennox,' he said. "'I asked her to come and talk to me. I like her. She must come and talk to me whenever I send for her.' Dr. Craven turned reproachfully to Mrs. Medlock. "'Oh, sir!' she panted. "'I don't know what's happened. There's not a servant on the place that dare to talk. They're never... They all have their orders.' "'Nobody told her anything,' said Colin. "'She heard me crying and found me herself. I am glad she came. 
Don't be silly, Medlock. Mary saw that Dr. Craven did not look pleased, but it was quite plain that he dare not oppose his patient. He sat down by Colin and felt his pulse. I am afraid there has been too much excitement. Excitement is not good for you, my boy, he said. I should be excited if she kept away, answered Colin, his eyes beginning to look dangerously sparkling. I am better. She makes me better. The nurse must bring up her tea with mine. We will have tea together. Mrs. Medlock and Dr. Craven looked at each other in a troubled way, but there was evidently nothing to be done. He does look rather better, sir, ventured Mrs. Medlock. But, thinking the matter over, he looked better this morning before she came into the room. She came into my room last night. She stayed with me a long time. She sang a hindered sonny song to me and made me go to sleep, said Conan. I was better when I wakened up. I wanted my breakfast. I want my tea now. Tell Nurse Medlock. Dr. Craven did not stay very long. He talked to the nurse for a few minutes when she came into the room and said a few words of warning to Colin. He must not talk too much. He must not forget that he was ill. He must not forget that he was very easily tired. Mary thought that there seemed to be a number of uncomfortable things he was not to forget. Colin looked fretful and kept his strange black-lashed eyes fixed on Dr. Craven's face. I want to forget it, he said at last. She makes me forget it. That is why I want her. Dr. Craven did not look happy when he left the room. He gave a puzzled glance at the little girl sitting on the large stool. She had become a stiff, silent child again as soon as he entered, and he could not see what the attraction was. The boy actually did look brighter, however, and he sighed rather heavily as he went down the corridor. They are always wanting me to eat things when I don't want to, said Colin as the nurse brought in the tea and put it on the table by the sofa. Now, if you'll eat, I will. Those muffins look so nice and hot. Tell me about Rogers. Chapter 15 Nest Building After another week of rain, the high arch of blue sky appeared again, and the sun which poured down was quite hot. Though there had been no chance to either see the secret garden or Dickon, Mistress Mary had enjoyed herself very much. The week had not seemed long. She had spent hours of every day with Colin in his room, talking about Rajas or gardens or Dickon and the cottage on the moor. They had looked at the splendid books and pictures, and sometimes Mary had read things to Colin, and sometimes he had read a little to her. When he was amused and interested, she thought he scarcely looked like an invalid at all, except that his face was so colourless as he was always on the sofa. You are a sly one to listen and get out of bed to go following things up like you did that night, Mrs. Medlock said once. But there's no saying it's not been a sort of blessing to the lot of us. He's not had a tantrum or a whining fit since you made friends. The nurse was just going to give up the case because she was so sick of him, 
but she says she doesn't mind staying now you've gone on duty with her, laughing a little. In her talks with Colin, Mary had tried to be very cautious about the secret garden. There were certain things she wanted to find out from him, but she felt that she must find them out without asking him direct questions. In the first place, as she began to like to be with him, she wanted to discover whether he was the kind of boy you could tell a secret to. He was not in the least like Dickon, but he was evidently so pleased with the idea of a garden no one knew about that she thought perhaps he could be trusted. But she had not known him long enough to be sure. The second thing she wanted to find out was this: if he could be trusted, if he really could. Wouldn't it be possible to take him to the garden without having anyone find it out? The Grand Doctor had said that he must have fresh air, and Colin had said that he would not mind fresh air in a secret garden. Perhaps if he had a great deal of fresh air and knew Dickon and the Robin, he might not think so much about dying. Mary had seen herself in the glass sometimes lately when she had realised that she looked quite a bit different from the child she had seen when she arrived from India. This child looked nicer. Even Martha had seen a change in her. The air from the moor has done thee good already, she had said. Thou'rt not nice or yellow, and not not nice or scrawny, and that hair doesn't slant down on our heads so flat. It's got some life in it, so as it sticks out a bit. It's like me," said Mary. "It's growing stronger and fatter. I'm sure there's more of it. It looks it for sure," said Martha, ruffling up a little round her face. "That's not half so ugly when it's that way, and there's a bit of red in our cheeks." If gardens and fresh air had been good for her, perhaps they would be good for Colin. But then, if he hated people to look at him, perhaps he would not like to see Dickon. Why does it make you angry when you are looked at? She inquired one day. I always hated it, he answered, even when I was very little. Then, when they took me to the seaside and I used to lie in my carriage, everybody used to stare, and ladies would stop and talk to my nurse, and then they would begin to whisper. And I knew they were saying I shouldn't live to grow up. Then sometimes the ladies would pat my cheeks and say, "Poor child." Once, when a lady did that, I screamed out loud and bit her hand. She was so frightened she ran away. She thought you had gone mad like a dog," said Mary, not at all admiringly. Oh, "I don't care what she thought," said Colin, frowning. I wonder why you didn't scream and bite me when I came into your room," said Mary. Then she began to smile slowly. "I thought you were a ghost or a dream," he said. "You can't bite a ghost or a dream, and if you scream, they don't care." "Would you hate it if, if a boy looked at you?" Mary asked uncertainly. He lay back on his cushion and paused thoughtfully. There's one boy," he said quite slowly, as if he were thinking over every word. "There's one boy, I believe I shouldn't mind. It's that boy who knows where the foxes live, Dickon. I'm sure you wouldn't mind him," said Mary. "The birds don't, and other animals," he said, still thinking it over. 
Perhaps that's why I shouldn't. He's a sort of animal charmer, and I am a boy animal. Then he laughed, and she laughed too. In fact, it ended in their both laughing a great deal and finding the idea of a boy animal hiding in his hole very funny indeed. What Mary felt afterward was that she needed not fear about Dickon. On that first morning, when the sky was blue again, Mary wakened very early. The sun was pouring in slanting rays through the blinds, and there was something so joyous in the sight of it that she jumped out of bed and ran to the window. She drew up the blinds and opened the window itself, and a great waft of fresh, scented air blew in upon her. The moor was blue, and the whole world looked as if something magic had happened to it. There were tender little fluting sounds here and there and everywhere, as if scores of birds were beginning to tune up for a concert. Mary put her hand out at the window and held it in the sun. It's warm, warm, she said. It will make the green points push up and up and up, and it will make the bulbs and roots work and struggle with all their might under the earth. She kneeled down and leaned out of the window as far as she could, breathing big breaths and sniffing the air until she laughed because she remembered what Dickens' mother said about the end of his nose quivering like a rabbit's. It must be very early, she said. The little clouds are all pink, and I've never seen the sky look like this. No one is up. I don't even hear the stable boys. A sudden thought made her scramble to her feet. I can't wait. I am going to see the garden. She had learned to dress herself by this time, and she put on her clothes in five minutes. She knew a small side door which she could unbolt herself, and she flew downstairs in her stocking feet and put on her shoes in the hall. She unchained and unbolted and unlocked. And when the door was open, she sprang across the step in one bound, and there she was standing on the grass, which seemed to have turned green. And with the sun pouring down on her, and warm, sweet warps about her, and the fluting and twittering and singing coming from every bush and tree, she clasped her hands for pure joy and looked up in the sky, and it was so blue and pink and pearly and white and flooded with springtime light that she felt as if she must flute and sing aloud herself, and knew that thrushes and robins and skylarks could not possibly help it. She ran around the shrubs and paths toward the secret garden. It is all different already," she said. "The grass is greener, and things are sticking up everywhere, and things are uncurling, and green buds of leaves are showing. This afternoon, I am sure Dickon will come. The long, warm rain had done strange things to the herbaceous beds which bordered the walk by the lower wall. There were things sprouting and pushing out from the roots of clumps of plants, and there were actually here and there glimpses of royal purple and yellow unfurling among the stems of crocuses. Six months before, Mistress Mary would not have seen how the world was waking up, but now she missed nothing.
When she had reached the place where the door hid itself under the ivy, she was startled by a curious loud sound. It was the caw, caw of a crow, and it came from the top of the wall, and when she looked up, there sat a big, glossy, plumaged blue blackbird, looking down at her very wisely indeed. She had never seen a crow so close before, and it made her a little nervous. But the next moment he spread his wings and flapped away across the garden. She hoped he was not going to stay inside, and she pushed the door open, wondering if he would. When she got fairly into the garden, she saw that he probably did intend to stay, because he had alighted on a dwarf apple tree, and under the apple tree was lying a little reddish animal with a bushy tail, and both of them were watching the stooping body and rust-red head of Dickon, who was kneeling on the grass, working hard. Mary flew across the grass to him. Oh, Dickon! Dickon! she cried out. How could you get here so early? How could you? The sun has only just got up. He got up himself, laughing and glowing and tousled, his eyes like a bit of the sky. Eh, he said, I was up long before him. How could I have stayed a bed? The world's all fair begun again the morning it has. And it's working and humming and scratching and peeping and nest building and breathing out sense till you've got to be out and it stayed a lion on your back. When the sun did jump up, the moor went mad for joy, and I was in the midst of the heather. And I won like mad myself, shouting and singing. And I came straight here. I couldn't have stayed away while the garden was lying here waiting. Mary put her hands on her chest, panting as if she had been running herself. Oh, Dickon, Dickon, she said. I am so happy I can scarcely breathe. Seeing him talking to a stranger, the little bushy-tailed animal rose from its place under the tree and came to him, and a rook, cawing once, flew down from its branch and settled quietly on its shoulder. This is the little fox cub, he said, rubbing the little reddish animal's head. It's named Captain, and this here suit. Soon he flew across the moor with me, and Captain, he run same as if the hounds had been after him. They both fell same as I did. Neither of the creatures looked as if he were the least afraid of Mary. When Dickon began to walk about, Soot stayed on his shoulder, and Captain trotted quietly close to his side. See here, said Dickon. See how they is pushed up, and these and these. Ah, nay, look at these here. He threw himself upon his knees, and Mary went down beside him. They had come upon a whole clump of crocuses burst into purple and orange and gold. Mary bent her face down and kissed and kissed them. You never kiss a person in that way, she said when she lifted her head. Flowers are so different. He looked puzzled, but smiled. Eh, he said, I've kissed mother many a time that way when I came in from the moor after a day's roaming, and she stood there at the door in the sun, looking so glad and comfortable. They ran from one part of the garden to another, and found so many wonders that they were obliged to remind themselves that they must whisper or speak low. He showed her swelling leaf buds and rose branches which had seemed dead. 
She's shown her 10,000 new green points pushing through the molds that puts their eager young nose as close to the earth and sniffed its warm springtime breathing. They dug and pulled and laughed low with rapture until Mistress Mary's hair was as tumbled as Dickens and her cheeks were almost as poppy red as his. There was every joy on earth in the secret garden that morning, and in the midst of them came a delight more delightful than all, because it was more wonderful. Swiftly, something flew across the wall and darted through the trees to a close-grown corner, a little flare of red-breasted bird with something hanging from its beak. Dickon stood quite still and put his hand on Mary, almost as if they had suddenly found themselves laughing in a church. "'We munnot stir,' he whispered in broad Yorkshire. "'We munnot scarce breathe. I knowed he was mate-hunting when we seed him last.' It's Ben Weatherstop's Robin. He's building his nest. He'll stay here if I don't fight him. They settled down softly upon the grass and sat there without moving. Us mustn't seem as if we was watching him too close, said Dickon. He'd be tired with us for good if he got the notion us was interfering now. He'll be a good bit different till all this is over. He's setting up housekeeping. He'll be shyer and readier to take things ill. He's got no time for visiting and gossiping. Us must keep still a bit and try to look as if us was grass and trees and bushes. Then, when he's got used to seeing us, I'll chirp a bit and he'll know us not'll be getting in his way. Mistress Mary was not at all sure that she knew, as Dickens seemed to, how to try to look like grass and trees and bushes. But he had said the queer thing as if it were the simplest and most natural thing in the world, and she felt it must be quite easy to him, and indeed she watched him for a few minutes carefully, wondering if it was possible for him to quietly turn green and put out branches and leaves. But he only sat wonderfully still, and when he spoke, dropped his voice to such a softness that it was curious that she could hear him. But she could. It's part of the springtime this next building is, he said. I warrant it's been going on in the same way every year since the world has begun. They've got their way of thinking and doing things, and a body had better not meddle. You can lose a friend in springtime easier than any other season if you're too curious. If we talk about him, I can't help looking at him, Murray said as softly as possible. We must talk of something else. There is something I want to tell you. He'll like it better if us talks of something else, said Dickon. What is it thou's got to tell me? Well, do you know about Colin? she whispered. He turned his head to look at her. What dost thou know about him? he asked. I've seen him. I've been to talk to him every day this week. He wants me to come. He says I'm making him forget about being ill and dying, answered Mary. Dickon looked actually relieved as soon as the surprise died away from his round face. I am glad of that, he exclaimed. I'm right down glad. It makes me easier. I knowed I mustn't say nothing about him, and I don't like having to hide things. Don't you like hiding the garden? said Mary. I'll never tell about it, he answered. But I says to Mother, Mother, I says, I've got a secret to keep. 
It's not a bad un, thou knows that. It's no worse than hiding where a bird's nest is. Thou doesn't mind, does thou? Murray always wanted to hear about Mother. What did she say? she asked, not at all afraid to hear. Dickon grinned sweet-temperedly. It was just like her, what she said, he answered. She gave my head a bit of a rub and laughed, and she says, Eh, lad, thou can have all the secrets thou likes. I've known thee twelve years. How did you know about Colin? asked Mary. Everybody has knowed about Master Craven knows there was a little lad and was like to be a cripple, and they knowed Master Craven didn't like them to be talked about. Folks are sorry for Mr. Craven, because Mrs. Craven was such a pretty young lady, and they were so fond of each other. Mrs. Midlock stops in our cottage wherever she goes to Thwaite, and she doesn't mind talking to Mother before it's children, because she knows us has been brought up to be trusty. How did Thaw find out about him? Martha was in fine trouble the last time she came home. She said that heard about Fretton, and Ma was asking questions and she didn't know what to say. Mary told him her story about the midnight wuthering of the wind, which had wakened her, and about the faint far-off sounds of the complaining voice, which had led her down the dark corridors, with her candle, and ended up with her opening of the door of the dimly lighted room with the cabin four-poster bed in the corner. When she described the small ivory-white face and the strange black-rimmed eyes, Dickon shook his head. Them's just like Mother's eyes, only hers was always laughing, they say, he said. They say as Mr. Craven can't bear to see him when he's awake, and it's because his eyes are so like his mother's, and yet look so different in the miserable bit of a face. Do you think he wants to die? whispered Mary. No, but he wishes he'd never been born. Mother, she says, that's the worst thing on earth for a child. Their missus not wanted scarce ever thrives. Mr. Craven, he'd buy anything as money could buy for the poor lad, but he'd like to forget as he's on earth. For one thing, he's afraid he'll look at him some day and find he's growed hunchback. Colin's so afraid of it himself that he won't sit up, said Mary. He says he's always thinking that if he should feel a lump coming, he should go crazy and scream himself to death. Eh, he oughtn't to lay there thinking things like that, said Dickon. No lad could get well as thought them sort of things. The fox was lying on the grass close by him, looking up to ask for a pat now and then. And Dickon bent down and rubbed his neck softly, and thought a few minutes in silence. Presently he lifted his head and looked round the garden. When first we got in here, he said, it seemed like everything was grey. Look round now and tell me if thou doesn't see a difference. Mary looked and caught her breath a little. Why, she cried, the grey wall is changing. It is as if a green mist were creeping over it. It's almost like a green gauze veil. Aye, said Dickon, and it will be greener and greener till thy grey's all gone. Can thou guess what I was thinking? I know it was something nice, said Mary eagerly. I believe it was something about Colin. I was thinking that if he was out here, he wouldn't be watching for lumps to grow on his back. He'd be watching for buds to break out of the rose bushes, and he'd likely be healthier, explained Dickon. 
I was wondering if Oz could ever get him in the humour to come out here and lie under the trees in the carriage. I've been wondering that myself. I've thought of it almost every time I've talked to him, said Mary. I've wondered if he could keep a secret, and I've wondered if we could bring him here without anyone seeing us. I thought perhaps you could push his carriage. The doctor said he must have fresh air, and if he wants us to take him out, no one dare disobey him. He won't go out for other people, and perhaps they will be glad if he will go out with us. He could order the gardeners to keep away so they couldn't find out. Dickon was thinking very hard as he scratched Captain's back. It will be good for him, I warrant, he said. Also's not be thinking he'd better never been born. Also be just two children watching a garden grow. And he'd be another. Two lads and a little lass just loving at the springtime. I warrant it'd be better than doctor's stuff. He's been lying in his room so long, and he's always been so afraid of his back, that it has made him queer, said Mary. He knows a good many things out of books, but he doesn't know anything else. He says he has been too ill to notice things, and he hates going out of doors, and hates gardens, and gardeners. But he likes to hear about this garden because it is a secret. I daren't tell him much, but he said he wanted to see it. Also have him out here some time for sure, said Dickon. I could push his carriage well enough. Has thou noticed how the robin and his mate has been working while we have been sitting here? Look at him perched on that branch, wondering where it be best to put that twig he's got in his beak. He made one of his low whistling calls, and the robin turned his head and looked at him inquiringly still holding his twig. Dickens spoke to him as Ben Weatherstaff did, but Dickens' tone was one of friendly advice. Where's ever that puts it, he said, it'll be all right. Thou'd know how to build that nest before that comes out to the egg. Get on with thee, lad. Thou's got no time to lose. Oh, I do like to hear you talk to him, Mary said, laughing delightedly. Ben Weatherstaff scolds him and makes fun of him, and he hops about and looks as if he understood every word, and I know he likes it. Ben Weatherstaff says he is so conceited he would rather have stones thrown at him than not be noticed. Dickon laughed too and went on talking. Thou knows I'll swap trouble there, he said to the robin. Us as near being wild things ourselves. Us as nest building too, bless thee. Look how that doesn't tell on us. And though the robin did not answer because his beak was occupied, Mary knew that when he flew away with his twig to his own corner of the garden, the darkness of his dew-bright eye meant that he would not tell their secret for the world. Chapter 16 I won't, said Mary. They found a great deal to do that morning, and Mary was late in returning to the house, and was also in such a hurry to get back to her work that she quite forgot Colin until the last moment. "'Tell Colin that I can't come and see him yet,' she said to Martha. "'I'm very busy in the garden.' Martha looked rather frightened. "'Eh, Miss Mary,' she said, "'it may put him out of humour when I tell him that.' But Mary was not as afraid of him as other people were, and she was not a self-sacrificing person. I can't stay, 
she answered. Dickens waiting for me, and she ran away. The afternoon was even lovelier and busier than the morning had been. Already, nearly all the weeds were cleared out of the garden, and most of the roses and trees had been pruned and dug out. Dickon had brought a spade of his own, and had taught Mary to use all her tools. So by this time, it was plain that though the lovely wild place was not likely to become a gardener's garden, it would be a wilderness of growing things before the springtime was over. There'll be apple blossoms and cherry blossoms overhead, Dickon said. Working away with all his might, and there'll be peach and plum trees in bloom against the walls, and the grass be a carpet of flowers. The little fox and the rook were as happy and busy as they were, and the robin and his mate flew backward and forward like tiny streaks of lightning. Sometimes the rook flapped his black wings and soared away over the tree tops in the park. Each time he came back and perched near Dickon and called several times, as if he were relating his adventures, and Dickon talked to him just as he had talked to the robin. Once, when Dickon was so busy that he did not answer him at first, Soot flew onto his shoulders and gently tweaked his ear with his large beak. When Mary wanted to rest a little, Dickon sat down with her under a tree, and once he took his pipe out of his pocket and played the soft, strange little notes, and two squirrels appeared on the wall and looked and listened. "That's a good bit stronger than that was," Dickon said, looking at her. She was digging. "That's beginning to look different for sure." Mary was glowing with exercise and good spirits. I'm getting fatter and fatter every day," she said quite exultantly. "Mrs. Medlock will have to get me some bigger dresses. Martha says my hair's growing thicker. It isn't so flat and stringy." The sun was beginning to set, and sending deep gold-coloured rays slanting under the trees when they parted. "It'll be fine tomorrow," said Dickon. "I'll be at work by sunrise." "So will I," said Mary. She ran back to the house as quickly as her feet would carry her. She wanted to tell Colin about Dickens Fox Cub and the Rook, and about what the springtime had been doing. She felt sure he would like to hear. So it was not very pleasant when she opened the door of her room to see Martha standing waiting for her with a doleful face. "What is the matter?" she asked. "What did Colin say when you told him I couldn't come?" "Eh," said Martha. I wish that gone. He was nigh gone into one of his tantrums. There's been a nice to do all afternoon to keep him quiet. He would watch the clock all the time. Mary's lips pinched themselves together. She was no more used to considering other people than Colin was, and she saw no reason why an ill-tempered boy should interfere with the thing she liked best. She knew nothing about the pitifulness of people who had been ill and nervous, and who did not know that they could control their tempers and need not make other people ill and nervous too. When she had had a headache in India, she had done her best to see that everybody else also had a headache or something quite as bad, and she felt she was quite right. But of course, now she felt that Colin was quite wrong. He was not on his sofa when she went into his room. He was lying flat on his back in bed, and he did not turn his head toward her as she came in. This was a bad beginning, and Mary marched up to him with her stiff manner. "Why didn't you get up?" she said. 
I did get up this morning when I thought you were coming, he answered, without looking at her. I made them put me back in bed this afternoon. My back ached and my head ached and I was tired. Why didn't you come? I was working in the garden with Dickon, said Mary. Colin frowned and condescended to look at her. I won't let that boy come here if you go and stay with him instead of coming to talk to me, he said. Mary flew into a fine passion. She could fly into a passion without making a noise. She just grew sour and obstinate and did not care what happened. If you send Dickon away, I'll never come into this room again, she retorted. You'll have to if I want you, said Colin. I won't, said Mary. I'll make you, said Colin. They shall drag you in. Shall they, Mr. Raja? said Mary fiercely. They may drag me in, but they can't make me talk when they get me here. I'll sit and clench my teeth and never tell you one thing. I won't even look at you. I'll stare at the floor. They were a nice, agreeable pair as they glared at each other. If they had been two little street boys, they would have sprung at each other and had a rough and tumble fight. As it was, they did the next thing to it. You are a selfish thing, cried Colin. What are you? said Mary. Selfish people always say that. Anyone is selfish who doesn't do what they want. You're more selfish than I am. You're the most selfish boy I ever saw. I'm not, snapped Colin. I'm not as selfish as your fine Dickon is. He keeps you playing in the dirt when he knows I am all by myself. He's selfish if you like. Mary's eyes flashed fire. He's nicer than any boy that ever lived, she said. He, he's like an angel. It might sound rather silly to say that, but she did not care. A nice angel, Colin sneered ferociously. He's a common cottage boy off the moor. He's better than a common rajah, retorted Mary. He's a thousand times better. Because she was the stronger of the two, she was beginning to get the better of him. The truth was he had never had a fight with anyone like himself in his life, and, upon the whole, it was rather good for him, though neither he nor Mary knew anything about that. He turned his head on his pillow and shut his eyes, and a big tear was squeezed out and ran down his cheek. He was beginning to feel pathetic and sorry for himself, not for anyone else. I'm not as selfish as you, because I'm always ill, and I'm sure there is a lump coming on my back, he said, and I'm going to die besides. You're not, contradicted Mary unsympathetically. He opened his eyes quite wide with indignation. He had never heard such a thing said before. He was at once furious and slightly pleased, if a person could be both at one time. I'm not, he cried. I am. You know I am. Everybody says so. I don't believe it, said Mary sourly. You just say that to make people sorry. I believe you're proud of it. I don't believe it. If you were a nice boy, it might be true, but you're too nasty. In spite of his invalid back, Colin sat up in bed in quite a healthy rage. Get out of the room, he shouted. 
and he caught hold of his pillow and threw it at her. He was not strong enough to throw it far, and it only fell at her feet. But Mary's face looked as pinched as a nutcracker. I'm going, she said, and I won't come back. She walked to the door, and when she reached it, she turned round and spoke again. I was going to tell you all sorts of nice things, she said. Dickon brought his fox and his rook, and I was going to tell you all about them. Now I won't tell you a single thing. She marched out of the door and closed it behind her, and there, to her great astonishment, she found the trained nurse standing as if she had been listening, and more amazing still, she was laughing. She was a big, handsome young woman who ought not to have been a trained nurse at all, as she could not bear invalids, and she was always making excuses to leave Colin to Martha or anyone else who would take her place. Mary had never liked her, and she simply stood and gazed up at her as she stood giggling into her handkerchief. What are you laughing at? she asked her. At you two young ones, said the nurse. It's the best thing that could happen to the sickly pampered thing to have someone to stand up to him that's as spoiled as himself. And she laughed into her handkerchief again. If it had a young vixen of a sister to fight with it would have been the saving of him. Is he going to die? I don't know, and I don't care, said the nurse. Hysterics and temper are half what ails him. What are hysterics? asked Mary. You'll find out if you work him into a tantrum after this. But at any rate, you've given him something to have hysterics about, and I'm glad of it. Mary went back to her room, not feeling at all as she had felt when she had come in from the garden. She was cross and disappointed, but not at all sorry for Colin. She had looked forward to telling him a great many things, and she had meant to try to make up her mind whether it would be safe to trust him with the great secret. She had been beginning to think it would be, but now she had changed her mind entirely. She would never tell him, and he could stay in his room and never get any fresh air and die if he liked. It would serve him right. She felt so sour and unrelenting that for a few minutes she almost forgot about Dickon and the green veil creeping over the world and the soft wind blowing down from the moor. Martha was waiting for her, and the trouble in her face had been temporarily replaced with interest and curiosity. There was a wooden box on the table, and its cover had been removed and revealed that it was full of neat packages. "'Mr. Craven sent it to you,' said Martha. "'It looks as if it had picture books in it.' Mary remembered what he had asked her the day that she had gone to his room. "'Do you want anything? Dolls? Toys? Books?' She opened the package, wondering if he had sent a doll, and also wondering what she should do with it if he had. But he had not sent one.' There were several beautiful books such as Colin had, and two of them were about gardens and were full of pictures. There were two or three games, and there was a beautiful little writing case and a gold monogram on it and a gold pen and inkstand. Everything was so nice that her pleasure began to crowd her anger out of her mind. She had not expected him to remember her at all, 
and her hard little heart grew quite warm. I can't write better than I can print, she said, and the first thing I shall write with that pen will be a letter to tell him I am much obliged. If she had been friends with Colin, she would have run to show him her presence at once, and they would have looked at the pictures and read some of the gardening books, and perhaps tried playing the games, and he would have enjoyed himself so much he would never once have thought he was going to die, or just have his hand on his spine to see if there was a lump coming. He had a way of doing that which she could not bear. It gave her an uncomfortable frightened feeling, because he always looked so frightened himself. He said that if he felt even quite a little lump some day, he should know his hunch had begun to grow. Something he had heard Mrs. Medlock whispering to the nurse and giving him the idea, and he had thought over it in a secret until it was quite firmly fixed in his mind. Mrs. Medlock had said his father's back had begun to show its crookedness in a way when he was a child. He had never told anyone but Mary that most of his tantrums, as they called them, grew out of his hysterical hidden fear. Mary had been sorry for him when he had told her. He always began to think about it when he was cross or tired, she said to herself, and he has been cross today. Perhaps... Perhaps he has been thinking about it all afternoon. She stood still, looking down at the carpet, and thinking. I said I would never go back again. She hesitated, knitting her brows. But perhaps, just perhaps, I will go and see if he wants me in the morning. Perhaps he'll try to throw his pillow at me again, but I think I'll go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate everyone who listens and everyone who shares the podcast. Uh, Yeah, tons of bonus content here. Be sure to check out Nikki's links. They're going to be in the show notes down below. Check out the other work that she is doing and send some love her way. Thank you so much uh, to Nikki again for just her generosity. I mean, she put so much time and effort into this and it's just, it's coming out great. So I hope you guys are enjoying it, enjoying all the bonus content. Uh, Like I said, we'll be back on Sunday with our normally scheduled episode of Emma. So stay tuned for that and yeah in the meantime enjoy all this awesomeness thanks for listening guys remember to share the show with somebody that you know who might enjoy a free audiobook